0: Welcome to Breaking Baptist, a podcast where we rethink traditions in light of the Bible. I'm your host, Isaac Thibodeau. In this episode, we're going to discuss why denominations are a good thing, sort of. We'll talk about Christian unity, denominationalism, the alternatives to denominationalism, and why denominationalism seems to be the best way forward before Jesus comes back. Um, So... I guess first off, we'll want to start with defining our terms. So a denomination, when it comes to Christianity anyways, is is a subgroup within Christianity that operates under a common name, tradition, doctrine, and identity. Well known denominations would be Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Pentecostal, Anglican, Lutheran, and the things that divide these groups are there's, there's quite a few things, but uh, some big ones would be church government structure. So are is there one guy on top that's governing multiple churches, um, or is there a collective of churches that help govern one another, or is each church autonomous, governed by either the congregation or uh, a pastor or pastors, plural? Um, so there's that. There's also the issue of baptism. Do you baptize babies? Do you baptize believers? What exactly does baptism do? And then you got the issue of spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues and prophecy. So many other issues to bring up, but those are some big ones that divide various Christians. And really, the discussion of denominations is just a, a smaller piece. It's It's subordinate to the bigger question of unity. How do we attain Christian unity? Is that even possible? These are these are the things um, that, that bring up this discussion. So um, I'd like to frame the discussion like this. Let's talk about the ideal of unity, the reality, and the solution. So the ideal being, this is what the Bible says we are to be like, and this is what God expects us to be like, and this is the goal. Then the reality, which is what's really happening in the world in real time, and then there's a solution to the problems that we're going to bring up in reality. Um, And then we'll talk about that, and then we'll conclude with a a verse, and then we'll be done. So we'll get right into it. So let's just talk about the ideal briefly. Um, I don't know that, that I need to spend too much time on this, because any Christian who knows their Bible knows that unity amongst Christians is something God desires very, very much. Um, it, it is it is a doctrine, believe it or not. So the doctrine of unity is a doctrine, and it's one, unfortunately, that many Christians don't prioritize, because um, I don't think we see it as a doctrine. Um, but it, we are commanded to be unified, so it is, a, it is a moral imperative that we unify. Now, of course, we need to figure out what that means, right? So that's what we're going to talk about, But uh, but we can all agree that the Bible does talk about that does say unity. And just one verse that I'll share, which is a, a massive one, it's uh, Jesus himself. So he's, in John 17, he's praying to the Father before his crucifixion. And this is, he, he prays, um, Father, I want my disciples to be one, even as we are one. So he's praying that believers, his disciples, would be unified, just like the Father and the Son are unified. Now that is a lofty goal and a lofty prayer that Jesus prays. We're going to talk about some other passages of Scripture that um, that deal with that as well. But for now, like I think that's a good way to just set up the ideal, that we would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. We would be unified in, in such a profound way that that we could say that, that we're unified just as much as the triune God is unified. Um, so that's the ideal. That's what God um, desires of us, that we would be unified in that way. But then you have the reality. So the reality is that this is just not the way Christians are with one another. Christians often disagree on how to interpret many parts of the Bible, which leads to Christians disagreeing in many doctrinal areas, some significant doctrinal areas, and um, and then Christians are often hostile to one another and ostracize each other. And in certain cases in history, even, even harming and killing one another, which is just mind-blowing that we would do that. Now, of course, you could make the case that those people really weren't Christians. And that, and that's that's fair. That's, that's one thing. Uh, one one thing to discuss on the table but the, the, the reality is they're identifying as christians and that that's an issue the problem is that within christianity as a whole there's always blind spots there's in every generation of christians and every culture there's blind spots to certain sins and we are certainly not exempt from them and the only way we can make sure that we, as best as we can, identify our blind spots is by um, speaking with Christians outside of um, our neck of the woods that probably share the same blind spots. So, for example, a Christian in Africa or South America um, or or the Middle East or Asia or something um, probably is going to have a different perspective on things than us here in the West. and they're going to have blind spots over there that we are akin to and we can see the problems with and vice versa. So that's just one thing to keep in mind with this, but, but regardless, uh, Christians do disagree. And I think there are some reasons, some understandable reasons as to why Christians disagree and aren't unified. And there's obviously many reasons that aren't reasonable, but here's just a few. Um, So when it comes to the issue of interpreting the Bible and doctrine, not every part of the Bible is equally clear. It's just not. Not every part of the Bible is equally clear. Uh, There are many parts that are equally clear. And I um, hope—I do want to say just one thing on that because I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there are parts of the Bible that are impossible to interpret and that we can never— it would be impossible to come to a right conclusion on that issue. I, I don't believe that. I believe that God, that the Bible is revelation. So God intends us to learn by reading it. Um, but the problem is, we uh, not, not every part of the Bible is clear, and there's some reasons why it's not clear. Um, many parts of the Bible require historical context for proper interpretation. So we are 2,000 years at this point away from the time that the New Testament was written, and then an extra 1,000 to 1,500 years um, added on to that 2,000, so 3,000 to 3,500 years since the Old Testament was initially written. So that's a long time, lots of cultural differences, not just time-wise, but also just country-wise, depending on where you're at. So w- there are going to be certain things that are taught or certain ideas that we're not going to grasp completely, really to no fault of our own, just surely because of our, our culture and, and our context. And that leads, I think, to many misinterpretations of the Bible, um, maybe not in huge areas. Because again, I, I do want to be clear, there are many parts of the Bible that are so obvious what it's saying, it doesn't matter what your cultural context is. It's, it's plain, and there's zero excuse. So for example, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the only way of salvation, and that there is one God, and that there are three persons in that one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, um, and that uh, we are to obey the law of Christ in the New Testament, and the, the moral commands are very clear, uh, to not commit adultery, and to love your neighbor as yourself, etc. cetera. Those things are all very clear, and no matter what context you're in culturally, as long as you can read the language that your particular Bible is translated in and, you know, throughout history, then you have no excuse to interpret that wrongly. Um, So there's that. Uh, Connected is many people um, who could get that historical context, which in our day and age, Uh, We we have uh, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to knowledge. We can know much of the historical context, maybe not all, but we can know much of the historical context behind the Bible, Old and New Testaments, and that really does help us with interpretation. But many people interpret the Bible in a lazy or unreasonable way. So not everyone is coming to the Bible with the same... Um, with with the proper mindset, not everyone comes to the Bible recognizing that this is a story as a whole. Not everyone comes to the Bible recognizing the context. Not everyone comes to the Bible recognizing the um, the genre of the literature. So you're going to you should interpret the Psalms differently than you interpret the Gospels, or different than you interpret. Um, one of the letters because it's a different genre of literature. So when the Bible talks about um, in Psalms the the arm of the Lord, we're to recognize that is a that is a poetic way. It's uh, anthropomorphism to use a technical word. It just means um, the author of the psalm is using a phrase or word to get an idea across even though that literal phrase is not true. So God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. Um, Jesus, who is the Son of God incarnate, has a physical body, but, but that's he put on that himself at a point in history. And that's just the Son, the Father and the Spirit do not have a body. But the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus, does. Um, but at one point he did not before his incarnation. So, we need to recognize that that that's just a small example of of a poetic way of saying things. You're not going to interpret that, and you shouldn't interpret that as as literal <clears throat> that he really has an arm. And obviously, there's other examples to give. That's just the one I thought off my head at first, really. Um, but uh, so, yeah, many people interpret the Bible. Um, wrongly, not recognizing those things. Some people just use it kind of like a uh, fortune cookie, where they just pull verses out of context and just use it um, that way. And and that's just not right. The Bible is a story. It's a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we're to read it in that light overall, and then treat each individual book and section Uh, in in accordance with its context. And even then, even if we all use those same principles, there might be still cases where we disagree on how to interpret, Um, but not on everything. So I want to make that clear. There are some absolutely clear things. All the things that are essential to the Christian faith are clear in the Bible, no matter what your context is. Unless you're being lazy and unreasonable in how you're interpreting the Bible, which many people are, But usually I wouldn't say those people are always Christians. A lot of times they're people in cults or, you know, atheists or whatever. But one other aspect that doesn't always get talked about is many Christians have mixed allegiances when it comes to their country or politics, social status. So um, this would be outside of the interpretation section of the discussion. So this this wouldn't so much be about... um, The problem of doctrinal disagreement. This would be more so the problem um, of Christians being hostile to one another or ostracizing each other. Um, So this is less an issue of the mind, it's more of an issue of the heart with this issue here. So um, people have mixed allegiances when it comes to their country, so you might identify so strongly with your country that you only respect Christians in your country, and you think of Christians everywhere else as less than you. And to be honest, a lot of times this happens with people in America. Now, not all Christians are like this, of course, but I know myself, especially growing up, being ignorant of Christians in other countries, just not aware, um, I always thought like the Christians in America are going to be the Christians that really have it together, that know their stuff. Christians in other countries are kind of like second class. They don't know as much as we do, uh, things, things like that. Now, Now my view has certainly changed from that. Um, although we certainly have more seminary education and things like that, um, in our country than any other country, really, um, when it comes to passion for the gospel as a whole, Christians in, in other countries, um, I would say, at least from my vantage point from what I've seen, very often have a a stronger passion for Christ and seek the scriptures in a more desperate way. Of course, that's to be commended. Um. But then you have um, the issue of politics, where politics in a certain country will divide Christians. So this happened in England with the state church versus the separatists, which would be like the Baptists. And um, then you got the issue uh, between um, England and Scotland. You got the Scottish Presbyterians, and all all sorts of different issues throughout history that have separated Christians. Uh, and then you have Christians that won't. Uh, won't fellowship with one another due to social status. You might have a a, a church that's in a middle class or upper class uh, part of the city that won't fellowship with a church that's in a lower class with a lot of poor people and homeless people and things like that. Of course, that is horrible and it's sinful and it's unbiblical. Um, but this is the reality. Remember, this is what we're talking about, and this is these are the reasons why. people, Why Christians aren't unified. These are some, and I'm sure there's more than what I brought up, but really, most of all, though, what it all boils down to is we are all fallen creatures who not only had our hearts infected with sin, but also our minds. So when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, Adam plunged the rest of humanity into sin. And that affects not only our hearts, but it also affects our minds. So our, our hearts are damaged in such a way that we love sin, and our minds are damaged in such a way that we don't always think rationally. And when I say rationally, I don't mean in the Enlightenment sense of the word rationally, where you're questioning supernatural things and whatnot. What I mean rationally is thinking the way God wants us to think, thinking logically, believing in truth, and using true tried and true um, psychological like mental phil- sorry not psychological physical, philosophical um ways of getting to truth um god it's it's full in, like you, you can't you can't interpret the bible without reason that's why i i think it's really quite silly when people say um you know you should have faith not reason well that's ridiculous because in order to even formulate that sentence, you have to be using reason. Now, I don't think that's a good reason, <laughs> but you have to be using reason to, to make an argument, to make a case. So it's impossible not to use reason, but you can make the argument that you don't want to use worldly reason or philosophy. And that, that's a whole other thing. But, but we need to be reasonable. We need to think things through properly. Um, but the problem is that because of sin, that has affected... Um, affected our reason. And we have biases um, and and things of that nature. So those are some of the problems. But now let's talk about some solutions that Christians have come up with throughout history. So um, one solution is to have a mandatory authoritarian structure. So one example of this would be the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. So to deal with the issue of disunity, which is a reality and it just so you know, it's always been a reality, even in the early church, many of Paul's letters and the letters of the church are written to address different problems that were disunifying the churches. okay? So this isn't this isn't a new thing. Maybe some of the things that are dividing us now are new, but the issue of disunity is not new. So one way that Christians have tried to solve the problem of disunity is by making a singular institution that is the ultimate authority and arbiter of what is true and what is not. So it's 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 really it tries to be really clear cut saying okay if there's a problem we can always know we can always know what the answer is to to an issue because we have this authoritarian structure, and in, in the case of Roman, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, it's it's the Pope. Okay, so you have the Scriptures, the sacred tradition, and the Magisterium, the Pope. Those are the three, um, the three structures of authority that are pretty much on the same level in the Roman Church. Um, so you have the Bible, and then the tradition interprets the Bible. Um, And you have to go with what the tradition says, but if there's still any dispute, there's the magisterium office, the Pope, who's a a living office that can uh, speak ex cathedra at times, speak on behalf of God in in an official way to declare something as right or wrong as true or false. Um, And there's a lot there, but what that does is it does make for better institutional unity on the surface. So it looks like there's only one Roman Catholic Church, okay? The problem with that is a couple things. Number one, with uh, not, not to bash Roman Catholics, but to bash Roman Catholics <laughs> in this particular problem um, is that um, there really isn't perfect unity in the Roman Church. Uh, there, there might be institutional unity on paper But there really isn't unity. I know, I I, I mean, I I listen to Catholics quite often. I'm subscribed to many YouTube channels and podcasts. I try to listen broadly um, to many different people and and sources. And I know right now a a big issue is the issue of abortion and homosexuality. There are um, people, especially in Europe, Roman Catholic um, bishops, priests, that are pushing for liberal agenda and for unbiblical things. Um, and then you have the issue over this last council, um, Vatican II, that opened up. Um, it, it was, I don't want to say it was like a liberal council, but I guess from some Catholics' perspectives, it was. It it really um, uh, changed a lot of things about the Roman Church and made it a little bit more uh, accessible to the twentieth and twenty first centuries, um, and didn't uh, restrict to like the Latin Mass anymore and. Uh, I think I think it was that one that opened up like translations for other, uh, translations of the Bible into other languages rather than just Latin, and also things like saying Protestants are separated brothers. They're no more. They're no. We're not to see them. They're not to see them as like un like not Christians, not saved, but now Protestants are seen as as they're saved, but they're still not part of the church. Um, obviously, you know, I could go on about that, but but the point is there are. There are Catholics um, that, that disagree with one another about that council, and they're divided about it. There's uh, the traditionalists, and then there's the people who agree with the council as a whole, and then there's issues over if people like the Pope or not. So again, I, I'm probably rambling too much about that particular issue, but the, but the point is that it doesn't work because it, it really doesn't make unity. It just it's, it's like a superficial unity, really, is what it is. And it also doesn't work because it inevitably leads to violating the consciences of those who disagree with the doctrine or practice that has been made official. So we see this throughout church history. Um, Anytime, especially leading up to the Reformation, a a Christian uh, teacher or any Christian disagreed doctrinally with something the church has taught, whether it was a big or small issue, they were counted as a heretic and oftentimes tortured or killed. And that was to preserve the authoritarian structure, preserve the institutional unity of the church at the time. But it was wrong because it violated individual Christians' consciences, and we know what Paul said about that in in Romans, uh, Romans fourteen and 1 Corinthians ten about um, let each be convinced in their own mind, let each be convinced in their own mind that like what whatever you believe about. Um, certain thing and it's the context is like issues of meat sacrifice to idols and things of that nature. Um, we're to respect one another's consciences as long as we agree on the big issues. So um, that's probably enough on the authoritarian structure. I think I think most Christians in America and probably most if not all Christians listening to this podcast would agree with me that that is just not a good structure to have. Uh, the other option is no structure at all. So, meaning that we don't pursue any sort of institutional unity. We don't try to identify ourselves by a particular denomination or anything like that. We're just a bunch of individual Christians who are the church together. Now, that sounds nice in theory if we weren't sinners, but we are sinners and we do have different opinions about big issues. So, this isn't just an issue of I have a different view of the end times than this guy. You can pretty much get along with someone who has a different view of the end times as you, as long as you agree that Jesus is coming back. I mean, that's okay. Uh, But then you got issues of like, should women be pastors? Then you got issues of like, um, are you supposed to baptize babies or not? How should a church be governed? Should it be governed by one guy who's over a bunch of churches? Should it be governed by the congregation of that church itself? Like there's so many different issues and it's, Issues that it makes it literally impossible to practically work together on many things—not all things, but many things. Um, if you if you have an issue, well, let's say you go to a Baptist church, but you're a Presbyterian, and you want your baby to get baptized. Well, they're not going to baptize your baby, right? So if if you're going, if you're gathering with Christians that all believe that you shouldn't baptize babies, but you do believe you should, you should baptize a baby. You're not going to be able to really function in that body of believers in that same way. So, you really it really makes cooperation nearly impossible. Everyone's operating on an individual basis. You're your own church at that point, really, um, unless you're lucky enough to find someone who believes exactly the same way as you in many areas, and which would be really hard if we didn't have a denominational structure. So. With that being said, the third option is the denominational structure, and I think this is the best way forward for Christian unity. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I think it allows individual Christians to honor their consciences before the Lord and what they're convinced Scripture teaches. So it allows them to honor their conscience before the Lord and what they're convinced Scripture teaches. So that means— and again, i'm not I'm not talking about some weird um, subjectivism that says there's no truth. you can just interpret the Bible however however you want. Remember earlier, I said there are certain things in the Bible that are obviously true, obviously true, that you cannot dispute that every Christian in every age has agreed with that these are th- these certain things are true, okay? And I mentioned a lot of them, you know earlier. Um, those things I'm not talking about because if someone disagrees about that, you can confidently say you are wrong and you need to repent and change your mind, um, because you're in danger of, you know, not being in Christ because of not, not believing the gospel really. Um, however, there are many issues like the issues I mentioned before, uh, regarding like baptism or, um, you know, spiritual gifts, uh, those some of those big things that that divide Christians. You can have different opinions about those things, and and be convinced of them because you think the Bible's teaching it, and and that and that's really the issue here is Christians over throughout history have believed many different things and have been convinced the Bible teaches those things, so they're committed to it and to change their view. Um, They think other other views are unbiblical, and they would be going against their consciences if they did that. So naturally, Christians that agree on these bigger issues gather together, and they form partnerships, because um, the more you agree, the more you can partner together. The less you agree, the less you can partner together. So Christians and Catholics— or like I should say Protestants and Catholics, to be more specific, Protestants and Catholics can cooperate in fighting against abortion or fighting against um, uh, sexual slavery, fighting against pornography. Um, Protestants and Catholics can agree in that. But other than those moral issues, it's nearly impossible for us to agree on really— Many other things, because ev- there's just so many differences when when it comes to church structure, to doctrine, especially um, even practices. Like there's so many things, and if you narrow it narrow it within Protestantism, you still got issues that it would make it really hard to worship together on a Sunday morning. But you still might be able to partner in the community to you know reach people with the gospel or something like that. Um so really that and that so that's really one of the main um the second things is a denominational structure allows you to be unified in the essentials of the faith and partner together with clear boundary lines. So if if a person is part of a denomination which which let's let's just be honest there's no such thing as a non-denominational Christian. Like that that's just not true. Like you might you might not consciously self-identify with a particular denomination, but whatever you believe very likely lines up with a particular denomination. So if you don't believe you're supposed to baptize babies, you believe that each church should be autonomous and not struck, governed by you know, another uh, outside force, uh, you're, you're basically a Baptist. Like, really. Like there's other there's other things that historically connect you to being a Baptist, but essentially, if you believe in the autonomy of the local church and you believe only believers should be baptized, you're a Baptist. Okay, so don't 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 fool. <laughs> like I, I heard it said that uh, non non denominational churches are just Baptist churches with a cool website, and that's that's basically true. Um, so yeah, so. T- so in reality, everyone, in whether consciously or not, is is their beliefs are identified or connected to some sort of denomination, usually. So, but this allows us to have clear boundary lines. When so, when I so our church, uh, the church that I'm a pastor at is is a Baptist church. We're a Reformed Baptist church. Okay, we don't have it in the name, but that's what we are. If you go to our website, it's very clear. Um, Reformed, Reformed Baptist Church. Now we can partner with a Presbyterian Church because we agree in many areas, um, but one one area we disagree in is the issue of church government. Because Presbyterians are governed by a presbytery of pastors, so a group of pastors in a region governs the churches rather than each individual church being autonomous. Whereas our church is um, is autonomous; it's led by the pastors at that church. And not by any outside force, but we can we can still partner together in many areas, and we can know ahead of time pretty much what those areas of partnership are going to be because of the clear boundary lines that being part of a denomination sets. So I know what things I can partner with with a Presbyterian church versus an Anglican or a Lutheran church. Which is going to be uh, the differences between a Baptist and a Lutheran are far greater than the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian. And I know that, and and I know pretty much right off the bat my limitations by knowing what denomination an individual or church is a part of. So, of course, this isn't; it still is not the ideal, though, because ideally we would all be of one mind in every area. Okay, because the Bible does talk about that: be of one mind um, in Christ. So the ideal is that we would we would all interpret the Bible correctly. And that we would all come to the same conclusions, and that we would all be unified in spirit. So I wanna say, I want to say this as um as by way of the, the ultimate solution. And, and that's going to be Jesus coming back. Jesus coming back is going to be the ultimate solution for this problem of disunity. When he comes back, we will be raised from the dead. The dead in Christ will rise. We will be changed into the image of Christ of Christ. We will be resurrected, given a body just like his. Our minds will be healed of sin. We will believe the right things, and we will live the right way on a new creation with him. So that's, that's the ultimate hope. But until then, our goal is still to pursue it. So the, the destination is the ideal— and the journey to that destination is where we're at. And we need—so really, the way—I think the starting place for Christians to have a unity together of some way, shape, or form is to be unified in our pursuit of unity in Christ. And one thing to keep in mind is— um, I heard, I heard one Lutheran minister actually earlier, I was listening to a podcast on this very topic, and this Lutheran minister gave a great example, He um, talked about justification and sanctification, how justification is the beginning of the Christian life, we're declared righteous by faith in Christ, and um, that's something that God does, he declares us righteous, um, apart from many of our works. And then sanctification is the process in which he starts Practically making us righteous. So we're legally declared righteous at justification. Sanctification is where he starts, um, like making that happen in real time. And then glorification is when that's made perfected, when Jesus comes back, which I just talked about. And he paralleled that to the issue of unity. So all Christians everywhere throughout time are unified. We are unified. There is one body. Regardless of our disagreements and our problems, We are unified in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of God, which means we're all part of the same family. Whether or not we get along is is not actually relevant to the question. We are unified. We are one. And eternally, looking ahead, we are unified. So even if we're not unified now in, in history, in every way we should be, we will be unified someday. So the issue now is... Parallel to that of sanctification, where we know that we have the basis for unity, which is Jesus. So if you don't have Jesus, you can't be unified. So if if someone claims to be a Christian but doesn't follow, doesn't follow Christ, doesn't believe in Christ, first of all, they're not a Christian. So second of all, you you can't unify with them in a Christian way. You just can't. But if you have the common foundation, which is Jesus, then you can, in some way, shape, or form, pursue the ideal of that perfect unity. Now, we're not going to attain it. Like It's just not possible to attain that while we still wrestle with sin. But it is possible to walk in obedience to the command to pursue unity with one another. That is something we can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to leave us with one verse here from Ephesians 4. This is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think that is an excellent note to end on. So thanks for listening to Breaking Baptist. Please take a moment to subscribe to my podcast. Um, Leave a review if you could. An honest five-star review or a dishonest five-star review would be just as acceptable. And uh, until next time.